Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Yes, you are, Rick. And I want to wish you a happy new year. I'm also, you know, I should say Merry Christmas. After all, um, uh, this is, I guess, the end of the uh, of the peace before the war on Christmas starts again. So, um, <laughs> so you know, it's, it's still... While you still can, yeah. While well, I still can. Uh, we are coming to you on the final hours of the um, of the twenty twenty of the twenty twenty year, and and Rick, I, I, I you know thought this would be a good time to kind of um, look at these final days of the Trump presidency because I I, I, I want to be clear, and I know there's still a little bit of doubt out there with some folks, but um, you know he is actually going to leave the presidency, move out of the White House. Uh, by noon on January 20th. So if that's the case, we have less than uh, a month, about three weeks left of the uh, of the Trump presidency. Uh, it, it does strike me that it's it's ending with as much chaos as we've grown used to. Uh, this this uh, baffling uh, veto threat, his attack on the the bill that had been passed with bipartisan majorities, negotiated uh, with his own uh, with his own Treasury Secretary. Um, he backs off on that. So yeah, so we have as much chaos as normal, but a lot less noise. The president himself spent most of this uh, holiday period, most of the time around Christmas, golfing, and has been heard from almost not at all of late. It seems like a, a little bit of a weird disconnect, John, from a president we've heard a lot from over the course of his presidency. The final weeks of the Trump presidency reached, I think, new heights of volatility and unpredictability, which is really saying something because this is been a presidency that has been defined by volatility and unpredictability. Uh, I spent many of these last several days trying to talk to people um, and you know who, who have been in touch with the president during this this really kind of crazy uh, last uh, I mean the last week, uh, you know, we, we, we've had all the nuttiness with the trying to, you know, every possible way to get the election overturned, the, the screaming matches in the West Wing, the bringing in of Sidney Powell, the, the saying he's going to appoint her as a special counsel, uh, the, the, the White House counsel, Pat uh, Cipollone, uh, threatening to, uh, to, you know, to resign. I mean, there, there, there's some really vivid details. And by the way, Rick, I am working on book number two. Just, 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 just to let, let's get that out there. Oh Absolutely, right. you got to get this stuff while it is fresh. And there are some vivid scenes, but I, I want to tell you just, just one. Um, it was on the twenty uh, second of December when the president uh, decided that he was going to throw the monkey wrench into this COVID relief bill, and you know, and and threaten essentially, although we never used the word, I mean, we're going to be clear, veto, but to come out and slam this thing after it had been carefully negotiated uh, by uh, by the Republican leaders on the Hill, you know, um, McConnell, a big part of this, um, Mnuchin, uh, obviously uh, a big part representing the uh, the White House, and, and, and to a degree, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House as well. And McCarthy, uh, right after it passed uh, in, in, the, in the House, McCarthy got on a plane, went out to California to get elbow surgery, uh, which required him to go under. You know, uh, and, and, and I can tell you that he was, I mean, 
he was getting essentially wheeled into the operating room when he got the call from Trump saying that he was going to blow up the bill. I, I may be slightly giving you a little bit of a, um, you know, I, I don't know if he was physically being wheeled in, but he was, he was there. He was waiting for his doctor uh, to, to bring him in uh, for the surgery uh, when he got the call. That's gotta uh, be fun. So that, I mean, that <laughs> they like, and then he went out and then when he came, when he came to, I'm told he was like, Oh my God, did the world, the, the world just blew apart while I was in there. What, what, what's going on? And then, you know, commenced. And then the president uh, the, the next day flew down to Mar-a-Lago. Um, he played golf on the day after, you know, the, the, the first full day in Florida. This was Christmas Eve. And I got, a, I got an interesting description of the president's mood uh, on Christmas Eve because he, he, he does this thing. He goes out. He says that he is, you know, effectively going to, uh, you know, he's objecting to, to this bill that, that is going to un, uh, extend unemployment benefits provide a critical lifeline to small businesses who have been struggling uh, uh, through, through this pandemic, do the one-time payment of $600 to everybody making $75,000 a year or less, um, and provide money for the, uh, for, for the states and the distribution of the vaccine. I mean, all this really critical stuff, not to mention the funding for the rest of the government, uh, which was thrown into this as well. And uh, he goes out and he plays golf. And he plays with, uh, with the pro at his club. Um, and here's what I'm told. I'm told that kind of, kind of surprised folks. Cause he, he got out on the golf course a little late. It was like 1030 or so. And he was back in the clubhouse sitting down for lunch at 1230. Two Speak hours. Up. Wow. Two hours. And I'm told he, uh, talked almost not at all, uh, during that frenzied run around the golf course. He sat down for lunch. You know, of course, people want to come up and talk to him. He was he, he only stayed in the clubhouse for lunch for about a half an hour and then and then left. And everybody who I talked to somebody who saw him during this time who said that he was uh, just in just nobody. People were afraid to, to approach him, um, which is not the typical thing when he's there. It's always a bit of a you know, it's an event when he has lunch and everybody's sitting and, and it was, he just seemed like he was really, really angry. So during this time, you have, you have this kind of triumvirate trying to get him to change his mind. Uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, who flew and played golf, flew down to Florida, played golf with him on Christmas Day. <laughs> How's that for a way to spend your, uh, your Christmas? Um, uh, Steve Mnuchin um and kevin mccarthy and also uh to a degree uh, mark meadows his chief of staff so maybe it's it's a foursome um and mnuchin is i'm told over the course of this is and mnuchin by the way i mean i mean i don't know how i mean he'll, he'll never be able to go and negotiate anything on yeah, i mean how, how does he how does he show his face on capitol hill after this i mean just to have your, your knees cut out from under you but he was still involved in the negotiations even after he had negotiated the bill he's now trying to get trump to sign it yeah, let's understand Mnuchin's position here. Mnuchin was part of the negotiations. That's one thing. But Mnuchin, once the bill passed, put out a statement praising it, giving the president all the credit. This is a great step forward. It's going to help millions of people, et cetera, et cetera. And it was literally, I went back and looked, it was six hours after Mnuchin put out his statement that the president came out and called the bill a disgrace. I mean, it is the guy. And, you know, Mnuchin was the one that was, that, that told the congressional leaders, 
If this passes, the president will sign it. By the way, right. the press office put out a statement. Uh, the White House press office put out a statement shortly before it passed, saying the president was looking forward to it passing imminently and you know and, and getting it to his desk where he can sign it. Uh, by the way, I spent five days, four days, uh, four or five days um, emailing Kelly McEnany. This is, I'm giving you a little bit of insight <laughs> here, uh, uh, trying to get an answer. Is the president saying he's going to veto this bill? Because he didn't use that word. Uh, you know, is he going to just let it expire? Is, he, is it still possible he will sign it? And I, this may shock you, but she did not respond to like three or four emails I sent. And I was seeing <laughs> her deputies and everybody. So I finally heard back from her just uh, uh, on Sunday where she told me, and I'm going to reveal something. I hope Trevor's okay with this. The, 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 the email was prefaced off the record, but I have this kind of rule. You know my rule that you can't lie. Yeah, you can't lie. Yeah, no longer off the record. I, I endorse. So, so, so I, I, have a, I have another rule, which is when you – you can't just send me something and tell me it is off the record. I need to agree that it's off the record. And with, with a lot of people – I mean, Rick, if you sent me something off the record, we have a relationship. I trust you. I, 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 I mean, that's fine. Thank you. But, yes. But, but, I mean, she's been ignoring me. I mean, she's given me false information God knows how many times. There is no such relationship there. So I will just tell you what she said. She said, off the record, would refer you to the president's tweets. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's good. <laughs> so I want to let you know. But anyway, this went back and forth. And Mnuchin is trying to say to the president, look, you are, you're going to destroy your legacy here. This is mm-hmm. going to cause a lot of pain. Um, uh, you're not going to get anything for it. It's not going to work. Uh, Biden will come in, something will pass under him and it'll look like he was the one that delivered, you know, when you refuse to. Um, and then, you know, Meadow, I mean, uh, McCarthy and, uh, and Graham, who, by the way, I think will argue in, in, in future, you know, in the future, when people look back on this era, and they'll be very critical, I think, of those that placated Trump, those, yeah. who, those who went along with him and, um, in, you know, in terms of challenging the legitimacy of the election, those that refuse to come out and recognize the obvious, which is that Joe Biden won and that he's the president-elect. I think, I think history will judge, will judge people very harshly on this. Um, I really do. Now, McCarthy and Graham are both in that camp, but I think what they will argue, and they will use this moment as their, as their evidence, is that because they did not get ahead of the president and and acknowledge the obvious and call Biden the president elect. They still had a they still had credibility with Trump. They still had ability to influence him at a time when he could be very destructive and he needed to be, you know, managed. Um, because I will tell you this, here's another thing. Um, throughout this entire nearly week-long period between uh, the, the bill passing, and, and the president finally relenting uh, and, and agreeing to sign it, he did not talk at all to Mitch McConnell. And Mitch McConnell's the one that, you know, controls everything that goes on the set. Sure. Communication with Mitch McConnell ended when McConnell came out and uh, said, oh, Biden is the president-elect. That's and the last- congratulated him. That Got was it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Did not dead, talk to dead, him. Dead to him after at that. All. At all. Isn't that amazing? 
Isn't that amazing? And of course, that came after the Electoral College vote. That, that yes. was only after the Electoral College actually voted that he even said that. It was the yes. most obvious thing in the world. You know, the, the, no, there's no, no, great, no great pride in that. Yes. He waited a month and a half nearly after the election to do it. And, and, and the, the certification of the states, this, all of it. But, but McCarthy and, uh, and, and Lindsey Graham used the fact that they still had a line with Trump and tried to find ways to placate him. And they came up with nothing. Here's the way it was explained to me. We, we promised him he could get a vote in the House on raising the payments to $2,000. By the way, that's a vote that Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi's vote, have. yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll let Nancy, we'll, we'll let because the, she controls it anyway. Nancy yeah. have the vote that she wanted okay. to have anyway. Okay, so that means nothing. And then Lindsey promised him that he would get a vote in the in the Senate on repealing this Section two hundred and thirty of the Federal Communications Act that provides some liability to social media companies. Um, which is the president's, you know, big thing. One of the big things that he's been clamoring about because he's mad at Twitter for marking right. his tweets. And he had vetoed so, the, the, the defense bill over that point. Yes. yes, but he didn't even get a he didn't even get a promise that the two thousand uh, dollar increase would get a vote in, in in the Senate. And it's unclear whether or not McConnell is actually going to do that. Um, and and the other thing is he got a, he got an agreement that that both chambers very strongly, Rick, listen to me, very strongly are going to look into election fraud. How strongly? Very strongly. Wow. They're going to they're gonna very strongly look into election fraud. So there we have it. I mean, it's really, and I, there, there, there are more details and twists to how this thing came down, but- You'll save um, it for the book. But bottom line for this one, John, is the president got what exactly? What was his big win? What did he get out of this prolonged you know, negotiation and, and golf diplomacy? What did he get? Um, did I stump yeah, you? I, I don't know. It's rarely you ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. I'm trying. What did he get? Um, I'm going to go with nothing. Go with nothing. And uh, we should note. I mean, this is fascinating. The twists and turns of all this. It was all pointless, right? It, it, it accomplished absolutely nothing. And to the extent that anything happened as a result, it delayed unemployment payments over the holidays. It delayed these uh, the, the 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 stimulus checks uh, for at least another week because of processing errors. It created huge chaos and confusion um, and, uh, and typical dysfunction for absolutely no reason other than the president. Tell me, tell me, John. Did he just want to be relevant toward the end? Was there some principle at stake here? Is this about well, him? Well, what he's going to do on the other side of the presidency. Look, look, first of all, I'm going to throw out two things. One is I, I think he did get something in the. If Loeffler and Purdue lose in Georgia, it I think people will point to the president's antics on this because they voted for this bill. They bragged about voting for it, and they got their legs cut out when the president called it a disgrace. They were already running yeah. ads about it. Yeah, so 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 they were put in. So so I I think the president, at some level, maybe at every single level, truthfully give them truth serum. I think he wants those two senators to lose. Because if those two senators lose, then they all lost, and he can say it was because election corruption. If those two senators win, then there's only one Republican who lost in Florida, and it's Donald Georgia. Trump. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. Georgia. You know what I mean? I mean, it's right there. Yeah. You, know, you know, if if Purdue and Loeffler lose, uh, then they've all lost. If they win, the only loser is Donald Trump, and that is not a good thing. And by the way, Republicans, how, how do you say the system is rigged if the Republicans won? So I think that whatever he may say publicly on his Twitter feed, 
uh, he wants those two to lose. The other thing is, I, I have to say, um, this is one of, there's so many like kind of mysteries at, at the end of the Trump presidency, which we can get into after the break. But this, you know, he, he's always portrayed himself as the deal maker, the art of the deal and all of that. This bill, especially because it was attached to the government funding bill, this was the last moment of leverage that Donald Trump had as president of the United States, because there's nothing left that anybody really needs out of him. There mm -hmm. really isn't. We've got three weeks. It's kind of almost caretaker. You know, obviously he's got the national security stuff, so you know, who knows. But, but in terms of, you know, domestic policy, um, there, there's nothing left that uh, where, where he really has leverage. Truly nothing. This was it. The prospect of a government shutdown, uh, the 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 the, uh, the the need to help people hurt by the the coronavirus pandemic, this was his maximum moment of leverage left in the presidency, and why was he letting it go by without using it? He was totally MIA except for having Mnuchin go out, and now we know not even really speaking for him, but the president himself was not involved at all in these negotiations. Two must pass pieces of legislation rolled into one. The president could have made his mark. He probably could have gotten his, you know, maybe $2,000 payment as part of this if he'd been arguing for it before it already passed, for God's sake. Um, he could have gotten, I don't know, maybe he could have re renamed National Airport to Donald Trump. I, I, I mean, I don't know what he could have gotten, but he could have been in there and he had leverage. He could have gotten something. And he wasn't, he, he was MIA. He was too busy you know, talking to Sidney Powell about how the election was stolen. He, he wasn't interested. And then at the last minute it passed and he has to say, and then he will, oh, wait a minute, this is the last. So I wasn't surprised actually. I actually was not surprised uh, when he shockingly surprised Congress and said that he, you know, that the bill was a disgrace and suggested he wasn't going to pass it. It's just a. Uh, and consequently, probably not surprised when he when he did the about face and signed it anyway. And to me, John, I mean, to, uh, you know, who knows what's going to be remembered in the Trump era? We've we've laid down a lot of minutes of podcasts speculating about that. And, and you've written a book and now you're going to write another book uh, that will be contribution to that. But to the extent that this the, the end stages are remembered to me, it it reframes and reiterates the fact that the president has never cared about governing really at all. He cared about some accomplishments because he could brag about them. And ultimately, he cared about himself. And he has spent the, 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 the seven, seven, eight weeks since the election uh, trying to uh, first complain about them, uh, trying to undo them, even to this moment, uh, declaring without any evidence that, that the system was rigged against him, compl complaining about all of it in the midst of the public health crisis, in the midst of the long, dark winter of COVID-19, in the midst of problems with the vaccine being distributed, uh, in the midst of uh, the, the possibility of a government shutdown. He never, to my mind, exhibited interest in governing toward the end. And that is a fitting coda on, on what we've all been covering for these last four years. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I, I also want to get at the question of what these last weeks say about what Trump will do after January 20th and what kind of power and influence he will have over the Republican Party and over American politics. We'll be back in a minute. All right, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. So, Rick, uh, one thing before we get to the uh, to, to, to the post January twentieth future, can we? I, I want to talk about the January sixth future, 
you know what happens then. This is when Congress meets in a joint session in the House chamber, kind of a raucous event, all the senators and all the House members together in the chamber like they are on the State of the Union. And the, uh, the vice president presiding as the electoral votes are formally counted. And we already know because we, we, we can do the math at home, right, uh, in, in the, uh, you know, by, by the Congress. And as you know, it's going to be Mike Pence presiding and announcing who won. Mike Pence. President of the Senate uh, is the vice president, and it's been an awkward moment. You, you showcased some of those moments on uh, when you hosted the Sunday show over the weekend, and they're fascinating to watch to see Al Gore have to announce the vote for, for George W. Bush and Dick Cheney for Barack Obama and, and Biden four years ago for Trump. And, and there's never been a vice president who ducked it. There's been a couple that didn't show up for the vote, but there's no one that's ever thrown any kind of a monkey wrench. First, John, uh, there's an opportunity for objections. And we've heard from you know, more than half a dozen House members who say they plan to object to the results, um, citing vague um, and unproven uh, claims of irregularities. Uh, to my mind, it's likely that they're going to get a senator. In fact, I'd be surprised, John, if they didn't get at least one senator to sign off. And that triggers debate in the House and the Senate. Um, it's debate that's not going anywhere. The Democrats can still control the House and will in the new Congress. Um, even if Republicans control the Senate, there's enough that uh, that will you know maintain the constitutional system of governance and and reject this. Uh, but then it does come to Mike Pence and Mike Pence will have the final word as president of the Senate to uh, dispatch of this and announce that Joe Biden won the presidency. Uh, man, <laughs> Pence can't like that. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and, and here's the thing. Um, I, I did play the, the, those pictures and it, and it is wild, especially when you see each one of those last three transfers of power essentially uh, were, were featured an outgoing vice president announcing a result that, that the outgoing vice president didn't like, you know, Gore to Bush, Cheney to Obama, Biden to Trump, and now it's going to be Pence to Biden. And um, I've asked a couple of people uh, close to the president, does the president understand that what Pence's role is is purely ceremonial. I mean, he's not actually like the chief justice deciding, you know, things. His role is simply to basically read from a script. Um, I mean, that's that's the way it works. He's it's a ceremonial role. It's not a it's not an officiating role. And he has, I mean, he could not show up. I'm told he will show up. Uh, but 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 he can't you know, change it. He doesn't have the unilateral power to decide who the next president is. That's not the way our system works. So I asked, um, I've asked a few people around the president if if he understands that. And the answer I've gotten is no. <laughs> the president is going to be livid at, at Mike Pence for doing his job. But Mike Pence understands that, right? Mike Pence totally understands that. Uh, but you know, if you, you know about this lawsuit, right? Yes, I do. Uh, I do. I mean, I mean, this is this is one of the wacky. <laughs> yeah, Louis Gohmert and and uh, and I believe that the state parties and at least in Arizona have joined on this, and they're suing Mike Pence. <laughs> they they the lawsuit want they they want uh, they want the judge uh, to declare that Pence actually does have the power uh, to throw out uh, you know a, del a state delegation's electoral votes. And change them and recognize the electors that he wants to. I mean, the, the lawsuit, let, let's be really clear. The lawsuit says that Mike Pence 
or I mean anybody, uh, any, any any vice president presiding over this. So this would apply to future vice presidents too. That the vice president of the United States in the role as the president of the Senate and the presiding officer in the counting of the electoral votes has the unilateral power to choose the next president, regardless of what the electoral count actually says. So John, we, we, we that's, laugh that's at- a, we, that's, a, yeah. that's a pretty stunning, I mean, we, we don't even need to do elections anymore. No, and we laugh at this because it's so ridiculous and so patently uh, absurd. And we presume that, that any judge would throw this out and they will throw this. I have full confidence in that, John. I'm sure you do as well. But let me, let me ask you a question. It, it kind of leads into the broader discussion here as we, as we begin to you know, wind down the, the Trump era. Uh, how close did it come to truly spiraling out of control, not just in this post-election period, but more broadly? Were we on, the, uh, on a razor's edge of spiraling into the end of democracy as we know it at any point in the Trump presidency in your mind? Was there a point where, man, if not for one or two decision makers or decisions or you know, maybe a couple 10,000 votes in, in one place, we could have ended up in a much different world, the kind of kind of nightmare scenario that a lot of us have thought about and, and, and reported on the last couple of years. Well, one of the one of the kind of central themes of the book are, are the way in which the people around Donald Trump, to varying degrees, tried to prevent him from doing great damage. Um, and in the in in the beginning, you know, it was uh, you know it was people in that 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 first the Reince Priebus, uh, you know, White House. He lasted uh, until August of of, of 2017, and uh, and I as I as I mentioned in the book, I, I had a number of people uh, in those first few months tell me almost verbatim the same thing, which was if you think it's crazy the stuff you were watching you should see the stuff that we prevent from happening. And I, you know, you kind of like, you kind of like, okay, okay. But, but this was, this was the approach. And, 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 and then with the John Kelly era, John Kelly as chief of staff, you had this triumvirate of these largely three individuals who saw themselves as, as, as preventing the country from sliding into total disaster. It was Rex Tillerson, secretary of state, it was Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, and Kelly, the, the Chief of Staff, and uh, they. I mean, there was there was kind of an almost an you know there was an understanding that I, I mentioned in the book. John Kelly told me on on many time many occasions while he was Chief of Staff that when I wake up in the morning, I should thank God uh, that, uh, that that Mattis is the Secretary of Defense. <laughs> It was really quite ominous. Like, what's the suggestion that we'd be in the middle of a nuclear war if, right. uh, if, uh, and that was kind of the implication. And then, of course, you had um, uh, in in 2018 the anonymous op-ed coming out talking about how there's a resistance inside the White House. But what 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 I point out in the book is that was actually at the point when the resistance was starting to fade away. Tillerson was was fired. Uh, Kelly was on the outs. Mattis was on the outs. By the end of the year, they would both be gone. Um, and they were, you know, the chief of staff, you had Mick Mulvaney who came in, who, you know, explicitly uh, told the White House staff, you know, the job of the chief of staff is not to manage the president, which frankly was what Kelly was trying to do. The job of the chief of staff is to manage the staff and to enable whatever the president wants to do. These were explicitly enablers. And I think that's what helped 
uh, you know, Trump getting into trouble that ultimately lead to his to his impeachment. Um, but there were still pockets of, you know, we're going to try to channel the president to do the right thing. But what we saw over this past year is the extreme version of there's nobody left. There's nobody left to stand up to the president on anything. There's nobody left. And, and, and I guess that manifests itself in, in the ways that he lashed out in the post-election period. But something changed and something shifted. And it, it wasn't that there were a whole lot of patriots in, in his inner circle. Uh, I don't see that. I don't think that's what, what it was. Uh, it, you know, there, were, there were some state officials. We've talked about this, some of the state officials that, that held the line uh, in Georgia, in Arizona, uh, and whether, you know, got the attacks. But you know, the system was, was holding though regardless. Ultimately, the courts weighing in. John, when you look at this, the, the broad scope of this, and, and as we, you know, as we, as curtains fall over uh, the Trump show that you've covered for these last four, four plus years, where, where do you feel like it leaves the country, uh, the institutions, the, the norms, where, where do you feel? I know you wrote a rather optimistic uh, uh, afterward in, in, your, in your hardcover edition. Your paperback comes out in a couple months. And I've had an occasion to, to, to read some of it. I may have actually written part of it. I'm not sure. <laughs> but but, 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 uh, but are, you, are you as optimistic, as a leading question, are you as optimistic as you were when you published the book a year ago? You're correct, obviously. We, we, had, we had institutions uh, that basically saved the country. But it was a close call. What would have happened if you rewind uh, uh, here now uh, a month and a half and the Secretary of State of Georgia was not somebody uh, that was going to stand uh, for the integrity of the election and was going to see his job as simply trying to ensure the election of Donald Trump? What would have happened if the governor of Georgia had gone along with Trump's demands uh, to order a special election of the state legislature and to push for the Republican-controlled state legislature to vote to overturn the election results and send Republican electors. What would have happened um, if the governor of Arizona uh, had done the same? Both came under withering criticism from Donald Trump, most popular figure in, in their party. Kemp had to endure Trump coming to Georgia and effectively endorsing somebody to run against him in the primary uh, two years from now, uh, Doug Collins. What would have happened if, if those judges? There was a, real, there, were, there were so many cases that that that, that the Trump team and and their, and their allies lost uh, in course in, in you know over the course of this past uh, month and a half, uh, well over thirty cases. One of the most important. Uh, was a case um, uh, challenging the results in Pennsylvania. And the judge just eviscerated the, uh, uh, the, 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 the Trump case. And this was a judge who was a, a member of the Federalist Society, uh, a conservative judge, you know, who, who said there was nothing to this. So what would have happened if, it, if, if, if that judge instead had been another enabler? What would have happened? I mean, what would happen if, what, if, what, if the, what if the election was as close as Florida was in 2000? I mean, what, what if what if what if the exact same vote totals happen and, and you know, Al Gore is in the Donald Trump position? I, yep. it, Seven I, million votes, not, you know, a matter of thousands or in Florida, you know, a, a, a matter of hundreds.
Look, I, I am optimistic, but I, but I think when we look back over this period, I think we were saved in part by a few strong individuals uh, who resisted the president on this. But I think we were also saved by Donald Trump's incompetence because he was so absorbed in, in himself and, and, in, and, in, and in protecting himself and projecting himself as this kind of, you know, as, as a winner against all the evidence. That he, you know, the, the, the whole thing was a mess. I mean, the legal team was a joke. Uh, you know, there were mistakes in their filings. You know, those, the, those, those two press conferences led by Rudy Giuliani, which will be ridiculed for the ages. You know, the one at the uh, Four Seasons Total Landscaping in uh, the outskirts of Philadelphia, and the other one with the... Uh, with the hair dye streaking down his face and, and, and these, and, and you know, Sidney Powell coming out with these crazy conspiracy theories that had no basis in fact. But I think that looking forward, you know, one, one of the questions, what kind of a hold does the president have on his party uh, going forward? Does he run again? Does he try to call the shots from Mar-a-Lago? Um, and I got to tell you, Rick, I, I'm not optimistic about his hold on this party. Um, uh, I mean, he vetoed the National Defense Authorization Act, which was overwhelming bipartisan support. And remind me again that the House overrode his veto. What was the vote? 322 to 87. That sounds like a big... That's an overwhelming margin. That's an overwhelming margin. So, I, I, so you're telling me that the overwhelming majority of Republicans voted to override their president's veto. Is that what you're telling me? I am telling you that. I am telling you that. And I also think the, the, the way that the, this, the, the COVID bill came together, leaving aside the, the, the president's antics at the end and ultimately signing it, it started in the middle. I thought this was a really intriguing little case study. This was after the election, so there weren't a lot of political incentives. And it started with a bipartisan proposal. It started with people like Joe Manchin and Mitt Romney and Susan Collins coming together and saying, hey, let's try to get something done. And leadership came late to the game. And I would argue that Joe Biden and his urgings, uh, sometimes in public, sometimes in private, had more to do with this passing than Donald Trump. Uh, and more to do with this becoming law. And if you're looking for a model of how Congress could start to work again, uh, you might have just found it in these end stages. And John, uh, you've been saying it for a while that you know people people kind of forget losers, and uh, a losing a losing president doesn't uh, doesn't get a, a pass on that. Donald Trump will have an enduring popularity. He's got a base. There's no doubt about it. But I I increasingly think you're right that the post-Trump. Republican Party. Trump will be a factor, but he won't be the only factor. And he may not be the dominant factor for as long as he thinks, or as a lot of people might assume. I mean, what, what did he show? We showed that he didn't have control. You know, he, he browbeat uh, Governor Kemp, Governor Ducey. Uh, they did not cave to him. He, he, he summoned the state legislators, legislators uh, from Michigan uh, to come to Washington to ask them uh, to, to uh, vote to you know, not recognize the Democratic electors. Uh, they came and they had the meeting with him and they said, well, no, we don't have, we, we're not going to do that. Um, he threatened uh, to veto and he followed through with the threat on the veto of the NDAA and Congress, including the overwhelming majority of Republicans in the House, uh, voted to say, well, we're going to override you. He showed himself to be impotent, not just a loser in the election, impotent to get to, to, to get his own party to bend to his will. 
on these critical junctures. And he's still president. That's, he's still president. Yeah, so what's it gonna look like when he's no longer president and he doesn't have actual you know, powers of that office? Are people gonna respond to his threats? Are people gonna respond to his tweets? And do whatever he says. I guess some will. I mean, you know, Louis Gomertz will always be out there. You know, you have, you know, Marco Rubio is seems to have tried to turn himself into like a little mini Trump um, with, I don't know, I don't know what he's doing. You know, uh, he was he was over the holidays calling um, Anthony Fauci a liar. So you, so you have people that will try to emulate Trump's behavior, but are they going to be taking orders from Donald Trump when they weren't taking orders from Donald Trump even as he was president? I think it's a pretty sad demise. Yeah, it's a pretty sad. So in the paperback, I do have, and I'm going to I'm going to close here. Their they're, they're, paperback's going to be out at the end of March, and uh, I describe a few things that have never been reported before in this uh, epilogue that tries to capture a few of the key moments of this past year, including one Rick where I got summoned uh, for another meeting to the Oval Office with Trump just at just before the. Uh, uh, the pandemic was shutting everything down. It was already a crisis. It already was spreading in California and, and Seattle. Um, but some some uh, remarkable moments. And I mean, you, we, we, we were book number two. We, we've got a lot to discuss. And I hope you're going to help me out on this one. But um, but 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 there is there 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 are a few uh, there are a few a few startling scenes uh, from this past year that will make it in the paperback. And is John Carl optimistic or more optimistic or, 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 or more pessimistic about the state of democracy than he was when he put the finishing touches on the hardcover. Well, give me a few more days to figure that out. Will you? I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. I think we've got a, I think we've got a, you know, if, if, if we, we, we got through this um, and I think there'll be, there will be lessons learned from this. You know, it's been, it's been a brutal year. It's been a brutal year in terms of the, uh, Obviously, the human toll of, of the pandemic and, and the damage that was done because of the mishandling of this pandemic, the direct challenge to the integrity of our democracy. Uh, as you know, one, one of, I mean, both you and I have, have the same approach to this, which is we, 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 we don't believe journalists take sides. As journalists, we strive only for accuracy and fairness. Uh, we are not the resistance. We don't choose sides. Uh, we are not the opposition party, but I'll tell you, the events of 2020 really put all of that to a massive test. Because when you're looking at a situation where somebody you are covering is challenging the very integrity of the democracy in which you live, it, it, it's objective. It is frankly objective to say it is outrageous and it is a threat uh, to the country. So that's my optimistic note for the end of 2020, Rick. Happy New Year to you, sir, and to all of our <laughs> listeners. Happy New Year. It's going to be a Happy better New year, year 2021. It's going to be a hell of a lot. It's going to be a hell of a lot better. Thank you. And thank you to Trevor Hastings and Avery Miller for helping us uh, through this year of this podcast. This was a big year for the podcast, a challenging year. Uh, but I uh, look forward to, uh, to seeing you next year, Rick. You bet.